This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. RuPaul's Drag Race first aired on TV on February 2nd, 2009. But the New York City drag scene that launched RuPaul started over a century earlier. Drag itself is an ancient practice, dating back to at least the 6th century BCE, when male performers in Greek theater portrayed women's roles, although it almost certainly started long before that. In 1869, Hamilton Lodge No. 710 of the Grand United Order of Oddfellows, a black fraternal organization in Harlem, celebrated its 25th anniversary with a masquerade and civic ball, believed to be the first drag ball in the United States. It became an annual event that drew female impersonators. Female impersonators and male impersonators could be found in New York outside of the balls as well. One of the most famous drag performers of the early 20th century was Julian Elting, who made his Broadway debut in 1904 in Mr. Wicks of Wickham, where his character disguised himself as a woman. Elting himself was careful to highlight his own masculinity, even while finding success in a career where he so successfully impersonated women that audiences were sometimes surprised when he pulled off his wig in a reveal. As we discussed in the episode on Gladys Bentley, the New York City nightlife of the Jazz Age changed with the start of the Great Depression and the end of Prohibition, forcing drag underground into venues owned by the Mafia, especially by the Genovese family. In 1939, New Yorkers Danny Brown and Doc Benner launched a tour to revive drag, what would become the Jewel Box Review, an elegant, sophisticated show of female impersonators, which was carefully sold to a straight crowd. That was important because of the era's laws outlawing gatherings of homosexual people. The Jewel Box Review toured until 1975 and featured such talented drag artists as T.C. Jones, Lynn Carter, and Jackie May. Beginning in 1959, the highlight of the Jewel Box season was often an extended run at Harlem's Apollo Theater. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, 
police raided a Greenwich Village bar, the Stonewall Inn, which was known as a hangout for gay and lesbian patrons, and which was welcoming to drag queens. That wasn't always true of gay bars, even in New York City. Like most other New York gay bars at the time, the Stonewall Inn was owned by the Mafia, who bribed corrupt cops to alert them in advance of raids, so they had time to hide illegal activity. That night, though, there was no tip-off, and the police started arresting drag queens, who were violating state law by cross-dressing. At some point, the police assaulted a lesbian dressed in men's clothing, possibly Stormé de Laverie, setting off an all-out fight between the bar's patrons and the police. Stonewall wasn't the first time the LGBTQ community fought back, but it served as a turning point in the movement. On the one-year anniversary of the uprising, activists marched from Stonewall toward Central Park in what would become the first annual Pride March. Even in this show of pride, however, March organizers asked drag queens, including Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, both of whom had been involved in the uprising, to march in the back. They refused, leading the parade instead. On August 18, 1984, the 15th anniversary of the Woodstock Music Festival, drag queen Lady Bunny hosted a drag festival called Wigstock at Tompkins Square Park in New York. The event, which launched with a small $1,000 budget, was co-sponsored by the famed East Village nightclub, Pyramid a hangout at the time for Lady Bunny, and her friend, an up-and-coming drag star named RuPaul Charles. Wigstock became an annual event, drawing diverse audiences that included the kind of people who probably never set foot in Pyramid. Annual Wigstock festivals ended in the early 21st century, but were revived in 2018 when Lady Bunny partnered with actor Neil Patrick Harris and his husband, David Burtka. RuPaul had given up on New York and moved to L.A., but he returned in 1989 and adopted a more realistic drag style, which resulted in his being crowned the Queen of Manhattan by the end of that year. He catapulted to fame a few years later, when his hit, Supermodel, You Better Work, was released on November 17, 1992, his 32nd birthday, with a video shot in Manhattan. In 1996, The RuPaul Show, which recorded in New York, premiered on VH1, one of the first TV shows in the United States with an openly gay host which led to the New York Times calling Rue, quote, a renaissance man of sorts, a drag queen of all media, unquote. Although the show was on the air for only two years, 
and helped to bring drag to the mainstream. As did the 1995 Hollywood film, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, which starred Wesley Snipes, Patrick Swayze, and John Leguizamo as New York City drag queens. It was another RuPaul TV show that really brought drag into the mainstream, however. RuPaul's Drag Race, which launched on Logo TV in 2009. Drag Race is a reality show competition where contestants compete to be America's next drag superstar. Season 15 of the show aired on MTV in early 2023 with episodes averaging over half a million viewers. In 2019, 50 years after the Stonewall Uprising, the New York City Police Commissioner finally issued a formal apology, saying, quote, The actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive, and for that, I apologize, unquote. Joining me now to discuss drag and New York City is writer Alyssa Max Goodman, author of Glitter and Concrete, A Cultural History of Drag in New York City. Thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, this was a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. I want to ask first a little bit about uh, what got you started on thinking about drag, writing about drag, and writing this book. So my introduction to drag actually comes when I'm about seven years old. <laughs> and I write about this in the book, but I... I saw the movie Tu Wang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, when I was uh, about seven. And that was that was it. Um, you know, like today we have, there's a lot to to consider about the film and, and the way the story is told. But for me and for a generation of people like myself, that was the first exposure we had to drag. And to that point, my mother had raised me on... 1950s movie musicals with lots of like big bold colors and swirling costumes and glamour, glamour, glamour. And so this was an extension of that. 
I mean, it's, it's glittery and sparkly and fabulous. And I, I latched onto it in a huge way, uh, obviously, <laughs> but if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. So drag has been a part of my life then for almost 30 years, and it has been a driving force in the way that I look at the world and a way that I understand gender and costume and performativity and you know the way we make space for ourselves. And it's easily one of the defining art forms of my life. And so it's always been an interest. And I was able to start writing about drag 11 or 12 years ago, which is not something that I had ever really thought was possible. I just, I didn't see a lot of people doing that when I was growing up and through college. But as the culture changed, it became more and more possible, which was really beautiful. And I think it was around the time of Flawless Sabrina's passing. So Flawless Sabrina was a very famous New York drag queen. And she passed away in November 2017. And shortly after she passed, I, and maybe even around the time that she passed, I remember hoping that there weren't other stories that we were losing. And I wondered if there was a book that was a history of drag in New York. And it turned out that there wasn't. There were other books that, you know, sort of gave a global look at gender performance on the stage or were native to a particular country, not the U.S. specifically, I don't think. Or they were like very overarching. They were very beautiful coffee table books, but there wasn't a a written through history start to finish. And I wanted to write it about New York specifically. I always wanted to work on a project that was bigger than me and a place where I could learn along with the book's growth, if that makes sense. And I made myself a student of drag, or I should say continued my studies. <laughs> Got a PhD of sorts, shall we say. I worked on this book for five and a half years. Um, actually, almost almost to the day, I think, by the time the book comes out. <laughs> yeah, so let's, this is a big question, but let's talk about what drag is. And, you know, you're writing about 150 years of history, so drag yeah. isn't just one thing during that time. But you know, what What do we mean by drag? What don't we mean by drag, maybe? Sure. So drag, as I define it in the book, is gender performance. And that could be on or off stage. Gender performance doesn't have to mean there's a falseness involved. It means that there's a costume of some kind. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting to me is like the way that I think about costume now especially after having worked on this book is so different because, you know, we could argue that when we are making presentations to, to maybe like a historical society or something like that, that is also a form of drag. You know, when, you know, we put on our eyeglasses to sit in front of our podcast guests, you know, like we are in a drag of a certain kind, but uh, for the purposes of the book, it is gender performance on or off stage and it is interesting the way that the term drag and drag queen specifically have changed over time. 
So when we think about drag performance, there were for a long time, many different phases of what that meant. So um, if you were uh, a person who performed in drag professionally in the probably until maybe the 1980s, you may have been a person who called yourself a female impersonator. And you called yourself and almost went out of your way to call yourself that because the phrase drag queen for a very long time was an epithet. It was it was used to designate amateurishness. And it could be it could be something that you adopted yourself. As you know, I'm just uh I just do drag on Halloween, like I'm just a drag queen, you know. Or it was, you know, something that someone might say to you to designate your drag as amateurish, which is an insult. And then it was also a phrase used to describe uh, transgender sex workers or transgender women in particular. And there was also a time where drag was the phrase used to describe what people we now call cross-dressers would wear. So the term has changed in many different ways over time. And now uh, drag queen is a badge of honor. And we also have the term drag king started to be used around the 1970s. And before that, it was male impersonator similarly. And there are, there are uh, performers who were very famous into the 80s who were performing in drag and also went out of their way to make sure that they were not called drag queen. The performer Lynn Carter preferred the phrase female impressionist. In the 1950s, there was a, a performer named T.C. Jones who called himself a male actress. And the performer Charles Pierce also refused to be called a drag queen. And he talks about this in, in an autobiography slash biography where he says, you know, there's a line there and I will always draw it, even if it's, even if it seems, you know, I don't want to say silly, but even if it seems unnecessary. So uh, the term itself has changed quite a bit over time. But now it means uh, a person who performs gender on stage, mostly. But, you know, you can refer to anything as getting into drag. You know, like sometimes you might like do, I don't want to say refer to anything as getting into drag, but, you know, like uh, you might go to a club in drag or you might, I don't know, go to a performance, a drag performance in drag. Like there's, there's ways to do drag that are not necessarily on the stage now. And then that also includes it, you know, one of the ways of looking at it, like I discussed is, you know, when are we not performing for other people, you know, and is everything drag like RuPaul says? <laughs> <laughs> so people may already be getting this impression, but there's a lot of different ways that drag performers think about themselves, think about how they sure. refer to themselves, but also a lot of different ways that they identify in terms of gender on stage and off stage. And yeah. you write about this, but some drag performers are trans, many are not. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a very complex interplay that's going on here. Sure. A person who is transgender is not a drag performer unless they perform in drag <laughs> on stage. You know, a, a person going about their lives is is going about their lives. Uh, and a person who is performing on stage is performing on stage. And 
yeah, there are some people who are transgender who are performing on stage in drag and a multitude of different kinds of drag. You know, there are transgender women who do drag as uh, men. There are transgender women who do drag as women. There are transgender men who do drag as men. There are transgender men who do drag as women. Like it's, it's, it's very fluid and it's just about telling the story and deciding what story you want to tell and how you want that story to look. So it seems like there's a a bit of an ebb and flow over time about how the larger, there's not necessarily always a larger queer community that identifies as such, but how the sort of more mainstream gay community, let's say, whether they're embracing people who are doing drag, whether they're sort of pushing them away and saying, no, 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 we're trying to be respectable. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it it sort of goes in waves. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say the, the relationship to drag of looking down on it from within the queer community lasted probably until partway into the 90s. and. That's not universal by any means, but uh, we're talking about waves and like, and uh, there are a multitude of things that impact that. And one of the biggest is the desire for civil rights, the desire to be treated equally and the fear that if one was not perceived as quote unquote respectable, uh, which drag queens were not considered respectable, if one was not perceived as respectable, one would not be able to get these rights. Before the Great Depression, during Prohibition, there developed a taste for the taboo. And drag became a part of that in what became known as the pansy craze. So the pansy craze became was this, this vogue in mainstream culture to interact with a uh, presentations and representations of queerness uh, in nightclubs. There were floor shows. There was a very, one of the most famous performers of his day was a performer named uh, G Mallon and had started as a drag performer and became kind of set the standard for what the pansy craze was, which was being this sort of very sassy and sophisticated and slice you in half with, with, with a phrase and would do it to everyone in the audience. And they all loved it. And some of them didn't even know what, uh, he was talking about, but it was seen as sophisticated to to be perceived as knowing to uh, to be perceived as being in on the joke. And so these performances and these clubs uh, really thrived during prohibition, um, like I said, because this taste for the taboo. And then as soon as the Great Depression hit, everything kind of took a turn and um I think one of the articles I found from the time said, you know, the something along the lines of like uh, the state of the economy is just as bleak as a female impersonator's future, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, we we laugh now, but like it's uh, it's set off like a very long decades long negative relationship with drag um, and Part of that is because during the pansy craze was when drag became associated with queerness by mainstream culture. And 
anything that deviated from rebuilding and from the conservative values that drove part of America after that was considered, it was, it was not something that you wanted to be a part of in any way. And drag began to live underground a little uh, at that time. And in the 1940s, what's interesting is that um, this was the war uh, in World War II where they started to screen or tried to, I should say, screen out for homosexuality. They tried to make sure that that uh, there, there, were, there were no queers among them, you know, <laughs> thing. And they didn't succeed, of course, because their, <laughs> their uh, methods were based on like vicious, cruel stereotyping and were deeply troubling, but just the same. So it was, it was now this duality of, you know, queerness is so bad. We don't want it among our troops. And the support for the war was so high that it, it became a pervasive thought. And what's interesting is that drag was also central to morale boosting during World War II. Because the soldiers needed to entertain themselves and entertain each other. And so when they were, you know, when nightly, if there would be a nightly performance, like there would be men in drag because women weren't allowed for a very long time. And so you have, I think one of my favorite things I found for the book was the the actor Sterling Holloway, who is, who later became the voice of Winnie the Pooh, served in a review called the Yardbird Review on an army base, uh, I think in Algeria, if I'm not mistaken, or Algiers. And they got a letter of, and this is a, a review that had drag in it. And they got a letter of commendation from Eisenhower saying, you know, your work is central to, to uplifting our boys and all that kind of thing. And the other part of that that also becomes interesting is that there was a a uh, musical that was developed by Irving Berlin called This is the Army, which was kind of the uh, the brother show to another show called Yip Yip Yap Hank, which was in World War One. And in This is the Army, there was also drag and it was an entirely male show. And there were several drag numbers. And in the program for the show, um, they're saying, you know, this is morale boosting as a long standing tradition, you know, and uh, it dates back to the Romans and all this kind of thing. And there's pictures of the president and the secretary of this and the secretary of that and the program. And there were obviously queer men among them because there were queer men all over the army. Because again, like you couldn't screen out for it like they thought that you could. So it was, it was this duality of being told like, you could lose everything. You could be dishonorably discharged and never be able to, you won't get any of these benefits and finding work will be next to impossible and all these sorts of things. And also we're going to totally embrace drag. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, you have the 1950s where there's um, a horrible, uh, uh, what ended up being called the lavender scare, where people who were even perceived as queer were being kicked out of the government left and right. Because I think one of the one of the men in government at the time said that homosexuality was as much a threat to America as communism. And so it's just it's a a continuing negative stereotype that also embeds itself in the movement for queer civil rights. It embeds itself in the movement for queer civil rights 
But first, what happens is that Mattachine Society is founded. And the Mattachines originally were a Marxist organization. And they were their viewpoints were toward revolution. And when there became this overarching panic, communist panic in the US, there were members of the Manichine who took over who were anti-communist, quote unquote, you know, and who um, were extremely conservative. And for them, respectability politics became the order of the day. And you have members of Mattachines going on radio shows and television shows and speaking out against, quote unquote, the swish, you know, and the, the flamboyant behavior, you know. And so if they're speaking out against the swish and flamboyant behavior, like what must they think of drag? And um, actually, what's funny is that in the Mattachine Review, there was a a positive write-up about T.C. Jones because the way that he presented himself was so respectable. And, but that sort of thought process uh, was in, was embedded in the culture in a larger way and within queer culture for a very long time. I mean, you have, um, I mean, the Stonewall Uprising, so we're talking about New York, obviously, specifically. Um, the Stonewall Uprising, famously and importantly, was started by drag queens, transgender women of color, and people of color in general, for the most part. And you had these sort of like middle to upper middle class white gay men being like, why are you doing that? Why are you being so, you know? And that was that was kind of how drag was perceived at the time. It was, it was a, a frivolous or it was throwaway. It was tacky. It was, it wasn't something you put on television <laughs> at the very least, you know, and into the 1970s, what ends up happening is that you have another facet of queer culture that develops, which is a, I want to say, I don't want to say backlash, but it is, it is an antithesis of sorts of drag in when you have what develops, which is known as the clone aesthetic, which is like extremely butch mustache flannel, work boots, sort of Tom of Finland vibe. And uh, one of the drag queens I spoke to was like, those are the boys in the clubs and they did not want us there, you know. And an alternative drag culture started to develop in the East Village, which was gender expansive in its philosophical and corporeal presentation and very heavily inspired by punk and uh, this was a response to that as well. But the queens that I spoke to for the book, queens specifically, had talked to me and said, you know, like if I had walked into some restaurant in 1993 and said, can I do a drag brunch here? They would have looked at me and, and told me to get the fuck out, not even laughed. But I really do think that one of the biggest influences of why that starts to change is RuPaul. Because suddenly RuPaul was everywhere doing everything and everyone wanted to be a drag queen. I spoke to Zaldi, who is now the person who designs costumes for RuPaul. Zaldi has a, a background in drag in the 80s. And when he was doing drag, people were like, why are you doing that? You know, like, don't you want to like have a career? One of the things he said to me that I really remember is that like, it wasn't a career choice. And now it's a career choice, you know, like. People absolutely looked down on you for doing it for a very long time. And actually, I think, you know, um, 
it started to change after RuPaul, certainly, but I had people like, even into the pandemic say, you know, I don't really like drag. I don't really, I don't really, mm, I don't know. And then we were all, you know, corralled in our homes. And then those same people were like, oh my God, I love drag. I just, I, I just sat and binged all of RuPaul's drag race. I was like, you know, I've, uh, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also there's a lot more to drag than RuPaul's drag race. I want to dig in a little bit to the the 1980s and the into the 90s because the the AIDS epidemic is so formative to to what's going on then and the way that drag develops. Could you talk a little bit about that that relationship between what is happening, especially in New York City, with the AIDS epidemic and the lack of recognition from federal government and everything, and the way that uh, that drag is responding to it? Sure, I think the biggest. The biggest way I could respond to that is to say that drag performers at that time became an arbiter of hope. And one of the people that I spoke to who was just like a regular attendee of the Pyramid Club, which became one of the biggest venues for drag in New York at that time, was that, you know, we would gather together every night and laugh, but it was survival laughter, you know, and the biggest places, two of the biggest places you could see drag in New York at that time were the Pyramid Club and Boy Bar. And they were very close to each other. And it became that at venues like these, you would see fundraisers for people with AIDS. Or these are the places you could go out every night and escape what essentially became like, for many people, an ongoing funeral procession. And it was, you know, people's and their friends were dying. There were multiple funerals a week. And then you had this place you could escape to. And you, I think the writer, Michael Musto, I interviewed him for the book. And he was like, you know, we just needed a place to cling to each other every night. And one of the places and the places where you could go and do that. And there was drag, you know, there was, there was something else to do with your brain. And there was another place to go and to be. And one of my favorite stories from the book is the performer Glamamor told me about going to visit people in the hospital and nurses were too scared to bring them their food. So Glamamor and Connie Fleming, who performed in drag for a long time as Connie Girl and is now an artist and model and noted door person, they would go and bring in the food that the nurses had left outside of the door for these people who couldn't, some of them who couldn't even get up, you know, and they would bring inside the food and they would, you know, perform in the common areas or in the elevator, any place where there was, you know, they had gone to go see, you know, particular friends of theirs, but while they were there, they didn't stop. And one of the early articles I found while I was working on that chapter was, an article in the New York Times that was a fundraiser for medical care for the artist Martin Burgoyne, who designed the single cover for uh, Madonna's Burning Up. And it was all these drag performers, all these nightlife people, all these uh, cabaret performers who had come out to raise money for him. And this is this is what they did. This is what maybe in some ways they had to do to cope themselves. And so that is also part of the turning point of drag starting to be more respected because people were able to see its power. 
the other ways that it's really big that AIDS and drag interacted was in part with the rise of ACT UP. And what's interesting about ACT UP is that they did use drag in some of their activations, but it was also a response to ACT UP. And so one of the reasons that uh, Lady Bunny created Wigstock was because there was a lot of militant AIDS activism that it wasn't for everyone. And she talks about, you know, wanting to give back, but in a way that felt more like her. And she said, well, what can I do? I can be a clown. And so she created this drag festival that went on for many years and it became an annual, just like giant event celebration of drag, wigs, wig stock. And it was just another, it was another vehicle for lightness in a time that so desperately needed it. And also contributed to the changing opinion of drag. One of the formative things for anyone in New York, but including the drag community, is 9-11. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how the drag community responds to 9-11, what that looks like, and sort of continues the evolution of what drag looks like in New York City. Sure. So after 9-11, there was a pervasive feeling of darkness and sadness. And I remember speaking to the writer T. Cooper, who lived in Alphabet City at the time. And he said, you know, it was just, it was funeral procession after funeral procession. It was hearses just all up and down the street and for many weeks at a time. And the same way that drag rallied against AIDS, it sought to reinvigorate life after 9-11. When I was speaking to Animatronic, one of the things that she said was, you know, there was this feeling of whatever you wanted to do, you had to do it now. And there was um, maybe a renewed dedication to creation and celebration. And what also happens is that drag becomes another vehicle for fundraising, you know, becomes a vehicle for fundraising. It also becomes a huge vehicle for protest because one of the ways that drag responded to 9-11 was to be a vehicle for anti-war demonstrations. One of those is a group called Americans, Americans, And there were many like nightlife, downtown denizens, performance art, performance artists, drag artists who got together and had signs like war is tacky, darling, and it's bad for our travel plans and things like that, and would get dressed up and in in all this regalia uh, to protest the war. So that's part of it too. Drag started to be a part of the anti-conservative backlash in a multitude of forms, whether it be as variety uh, presentations, as one-person shows, as you know, nights of drag or or singular performances or what have you. But that was uh, so. It was part of the emotional rebuilding, but it was also a part of addressing the way that the cultural climate had changed. So we're, of course, at a moment again of cultural backlash. So we have both the the rise of drag, drag is everywhere now, but also this backlash against drag and trying to outlaw drag story hours or something. 
I guess what what would you recommend people do to to sort of make sure that they understand what's happening, what sort of reaction is, is going on, and and what you know how they might want to respond to it if if they're listening and and are interested. I think the best thing to do is educate yourself on the the different bills that are being attempted by various state governments. And when you have the opportunity, if you have the opportunity to vote against them, but knowledge is power. And I think, I don't know, I think sometimes because drag appears uh, so frothy and frivolous that it's just like, well, drag, like who cares? But actually, you know, it's, it's an art form. It's an art form with thousands of years of roots and drag and its practitioners deserve to be given the respect of any other artist. So I think a great way is to educate yourself is not just to to learn what's happening, but to recognize that bills like these and laws like these are actively suppressing freedom of expression and freedom of speech. And for people who are citizens of this country, we are entitled to those things. So to speak out when you have the opportunity to to donate to organizations that help drag artists who are in need, to support local drag, absolutely, to go out and see shows and tip all of your performers and to buy their merch if you like them and to make sure that drag continues to have an audience and an audience of supporters. So there is a ton in this book that we're not going to get time to talk to. All sorts of people show up like Mae West and uh, David Bowie and Lady Gaga. So uh, people should check out the book. How can they get a copy? Wherever fine books are sold. (laughs) Yeah, it's available. It's being published by Hanover Square Press, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And it will be available September 12th. Is there anything else you want to make sure we talk about? When I first started working on the book five and a half years ago, the world was a lot different. And at that time, I wanted to make sure that stories didn't get lost. And I also hope now, as I hope then, that the book is able to find the people who need it, that people are empowered to learn more and to find roots. And that, like I said, drag is an art form that has thousands of years of history and its practitioners deserve to be respected as the artists that they are. And I hope that when people are reading the book, that they're able to learn about these amazing people who have continued to build this art form that has affected so much of the culture that we have today. And, you know, I, I also wanted to honor these practitioners of the form who built the drag that we have now and to help make them as much a household name as, as any other performer might be. So I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for speaking with me. I I really enjoyed uh, reading your book and, and learning all about drag. Oh, of course. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! MSW.